If you have the discipline to establish some kind of daily practice of any kind that never, ever wavers, then that could be the seed that you can just grow anything from that. And just to use myself as an example, I, in the last seven years, I've learned how to play banjo and harmonica like really well. You know, I had never touched either one of them, but it's because I practice every day. I play every day. Hi and welcome. It's Runchex and you're listening to my podcast where I explore the topics around what it takes to become a great poker player with various interesting people from in and around the poker industry. If you're enjoying the podcast, you might be interested to sign up to my weekly newsletter where I deliver my key takeaways and ideas from each latest episode. So go look it up on runchexpodcast.com. Today, I'm talking to Tommy Angelo, the author of several books, including Painless Poker and Dailiness. Tommy is one of the first people to become a poker coach in modern sense. He coached some big names early on in their careers. Tommy's been playing poker professionally for about 30 years, so he has a wealth of experience. We talk about establishing good habits and routines, work-life balance in poker, similarities and differences between live and online poker, handling your emotions, dealing with downswings, and so much more. Enjoy! Well, Tommy, first of all, so happy to have you on. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've seen your work. um, I don't even remember. It's been a long time ago. The Mm -hmm. first time I encountered it was something on Run It Once Poker. um, Some courses that you did. Yeah, I did some videos there around uh, 2011, I think, 12, 13. Right. (laughs) And, And if I understand it correctly you ba- you started playing poker in the 90s um and you started coaching pretty early as well it was early 2000s right you were basically yeah. coaching before coaching was popular so when i started coaching in 2004 before that there was bob caffione david skolansky um one other guy i can't remember his name but there were very few people taking money for coaching at that time and that was right when the you know the explosion was still exploding basically yeah. and what happened was some i had been writing poker articles for 5 years at that time and somebody wrote to me and said hey i'd like to pay you some money to talk about poker i'm like okay and that's <laughs> that was the beginning of my coaching career it, right. it wasn't even an idea i had Oh, interesting. So it was basically you were pulled into it and uh, you had a good experience and you thought, so how how did you actually, how did you go about making it a business? Okay, well, um, the way I did that was I, I, uh, once I decided to do it, okay, then it became a project. Then it became a full-blown project. So there was about a six-month, there was about a six-month period between when I decided to coach and when I actually started doing it for real, where I presented a product. And so during that period, I developed my program and developed lots of ideas of how I might help different types of players with many, many aspects of what can go wrong as a poker player, even besides just the betting strategy stuff. Okay. So so I did that. And then I, I started out, I was just charging $50 an hour. And I did a couple local guys. And then I went to Vegas and coached a couple guys. And I put together a one-day program you know, higher price. And that included us going to play together in the casino at the same game. And that was part of what I offered was 
live coaching, and I don't mean live coaching about the strategy of live poker. I mean physical tells, what you, how you behave at the table, what you say, what you don't say, everything. And so I would play in the same game with my clients, and I did this for years, in the same game multiple times. Once my program got bigger, it was like a four-day package thing. By the time I coached Phil Galfon and David Benefield and some of these big-name guys, I had already coached a lot, and I had like a three-day package that we went to Vegas, and we would play in the same game every night, even with Phil Galfon. Even though he's playing nosebleeds, we would play 2-5. And I would advise people on every single aspect of the game there is. Life balance, food, sleep, tilt, uh, bankroll, relationship issues. Every single aspect of poker that could be improved on or was a problem. That's, that's what my program included right from the beginning. So that's, that's kind of what set it aside. And then I was very fortunate to... Coach Phil and a few other heavy hitters back then around 2005. And that got, uh, they said some nice things about me and that built up my credibility. And then uh, June 2006 is when I decided to stop playing, stop coaching and write elements of poker. So I basically, for the first time, and I started playing when I was eight. Okay, so I started playing poker in like 1966. And I started playing for money in 1972. And then I started playing professionally in 1990. And um, uh, so I was very fortunate to coach, you know, Phil and some of these other guys. And I, for the, the only time I never played poker at all was when I stopped altogether right elements in poker in 2006. And because I knew that if I was still playing at the same time, I wouldn't be able to maintain the writing flow that I was going to need. So I didn't play a single hand of poker for like 15 months. And then what happened was my coaching uh, kind of exploded after that because the book came out late 2007. That was the heyday of poker, online poker, live poker. Everything's going crazy. So I had plenty of clients and my fee then was $10,000. It was $10,000 for a four-day package mm -hmm. that included pre-work and a, a lot of follow-up work. And during that period, 2008, 2009, I was doing one new client every three weeks going down. It was all in Vegas, almost all in Vegas. And um, just busy and happy as can be. And I was just accumulating more and more content, more knowledge, more understanding. You know, that's what that's where Elements of Poker came from was all the stuff I'd learned during the first two years of coaching and my whole life. And then during 08 and 09, I accumulated a whole bunch more stuff. And that worked its way into my next major book, which was called Painless Poker. And so I quit po coaching Black Friday, you know, kind of killed everything in 2011. And so I spent six or seven years working on one book, Painless Poker. And I feel that between Elements of Poker and Painless Poker, <laughs> pretty much exhausted everything I have to say about poker, um, you know, to the to the general populace anyway. Um, you know, when I'm working with someone one on one, that's a, that's completely different. So there's the story of some of my life. <laughs> Interesting. I want to dig into a couple things here. Um, first of all, just for the context, how did you, um, how did Phil become your student? How did that happen? Well, uh, he just wrote, I'm pretty sure he just wrote to me and said, hey, I want you to coach me. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. that's pretty much how it works. Because um, yeah, the reason I'm asking, actually, it's it's not, just because oh it's Phil, 
Uh-huh. Right? But it's just that we're talking about the early days of coaching. You know, you're one of the first coaches. And I mean, obviously now Phil is doing still pretty good and, uh, you know, with his challenge and visibly one mm-hmm. of the one of the best players in the world. And it's obviously not surprising that some of the best players in the world were the first people to get coaches, the first people yeah. to take the thing seriously, right? Yeah. That's why I'm asking because I'm, I'm really right. curious to see, you know, nowadays you don't surprise anyone if you say, well, you know what? I have a coaching team. I have a coach for strategy. I have a coach, a mental coach. I have a, right. a meditation coach, what have you. You can have a full yeah. team. It's not surprising. It's kind of normal. It, rather surprising that as a top player, you don't have a coach. That's right. weird, right? But yeah. um, it's just interesting to me. How did these guys, when nobody is really, like not many people are coaching, not many people are getting coached how did they approach it like why did they reach out to coaches they first of all i think you just answered the question why did phil hire me it might be because there wasn't anybody else all right he had no choice um but you know i've learned so much from these guys i mean i was never into getting coached on stuff i was a professional musician for years and never occurred to me to like go get lessons and you know it's like but these guys by that i mean the that generation they they somehow knew that they needed coaching and that they wanted to get as good as they could as fast as they could and that was going to not happen only in their own mind right they knew that so so you got to give them full credit anybody who reaches out reached out to a coach back then before it was even a thing you know i think that speaks a lot to them Ben Salsky, Ben Salsky was the same way. You know, he was just like hungry f- to get all the best information he possibly could. And, uh, and yeah, so, um, yeah, so there you go. Mm. And you said, I mean, obviously you learned a lot from these guys. Like, what have you learned? Like, what are... Thinking back through the years, what were some of the biggest takeaways for you, like your own aha moments, which you got from from these guys? Uh Um, I guess it's just the, it's kind of like what I was touching on, the attitude of wanting to improve and being willing to sacrifice, you know, make changes and just dedication you know, I, I just was like, God, I, 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 I wished I had had that earlier. I have it now. I can, I have it, you know, to anything I take on, but I didn't have it then. And that, you know, that's really kind of the takeaway. It's like they would inspire me to become a better player and a better coach because they were just like, you know, just so hungry to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I guess in terms of, in terms of strategy, I have, I have, taken some big takeaways from Phil and others, which is at every point in my career as a player, I have felt that if I simply did nothing but played more consistently tighter before the flop, in other words, no leaking, according to my rules, that that was the place to go to improve my earn. You know, my A game was very good and it was always getting better, but it was consistency you know, if I could play my A-plus game on every single hand, every street of every hand, what would that do to my earn rate, you know, mm-hmm. compared to playing a slightly better A game? 
Okay. And, and so by working with great players for years, and we do talk strategy, there are some things I go over with every, all the players, but one of the things I have helped all of them with is consistency. And so when all these great players keep coming to me and they tell me what they need is more consistency, and when we break down what does consistency mean, it doesn't just mean being focused on the turn to figure out if the guy's bluffing. Ultimately, it comes down to leaking before the flop, ultimately. Any one of these guys, at some point, I would get them to say, okay, when you're on your worst game, what is the first symptom? How does it affect your play? Are there situations where you play 10-8 offsuit when you would coach your student to not play it? That's the question I put to them. And they're like, yes. I was like, well, there it is. That is the moment where you are losing money that is quantifiable that we can zone in on. Now we have to retrace everything and reverse engineering and figure out what complicated chain of cause and effect gets you to leak at that one specific moment. So no matter how great the players are, that that's my takeaway is that it's possible to, to zone in on those leaky moments and then step away and look at the, the macro and figure out what sort of mental issues or sleep issues or whatever the heck it is that makes that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, I mean, like you said, even the top players, everybody has weaknesses. Everybody makes mistakes. It's mm-hmm. part of the game. We can't eliminate the mistakes. We can minimize the amount of times we make them by, you know, making the good habits with with all the with all the things apart from the strategy. And of course, because yeah, like, you know, when you talk, when you ask a question about 10, 10 eight offsuit, right? Mm-hmm. The guys know the strategy. The reason they do make the mistake is not lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's you know, there's there's other underlying um, right anger, <laughs> frustration, exactly. boredom. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, what I found interesting when you mentioned that basically the coaching started booming for you, and then you took I don't remember how much time off, but like a year off to write the first book. Yeah, a year and a half. Yeah. So at the time, basically the business is booming. Yeah. You stopped playing poker, you stopped coaching as well. Right. Right? Why yep. how did you make that decision? Like I, I understand stopping playing. That's probably a great yeah. idea because as you said you probably wouldn't be able to finish the book, but why stop coaching? It two two well there's several factors. One is I had to. There was it was I I have started and stopped long range big projects before. And I've started book projects before. And I knew because I had done that a number of times that the only way I was ever going to actually finish a book was to have that be my full-time job where I wake up and it's like, what am I going to do today? I'm going to write. What am I going to do tomorrow? I'm going to write. That's it. Into the unforeseeable future. And, and, And I knew, you know, I was whatever, 45. I've been around that, that there was no way I could do coaching or playing or anything else. It would eventually derail the project. I just knew that, right? So that took on a crazy commitment to do that. But the other thing that was kind of nice was, uh, and we're going to talk more about this. Okay, so I, I started, I, I did a big life turnaround in August 2003. That's when I quit drinking and started meditating every single day. And I've not skipped a single day since then. 
whatever, 17 years, right? So as a result of that, my poker game got way, way better, okay? And, and I was already doing fine as a pro. But then what happened was in 2005 and the first half of 2006, I was playing nothing but the biggest game around here, which was no limit. 20 effective blinds were 2040 blinds, no limit, 2000 minimum buy in. And I was playing limit hold'em, uh, 4080 and 8160. Okay. So I played nothing but those stakes for a year and a half. And at the beginning of 2006, I set my. Now, at this time, the coaching was not full time, it was there. And it was doing great, but it really went crazy after Elements of Poker came out, okay? Right. But I was still getting plenty of playing time. And at the beginning of June, I set a quota for myself uh, to make 100000 playing for the year, part-time, at those stakes. And I got there in June, okay, in six months. And then also what happened was there was just a gap in the coaching, just a natural occurring gap. My pipeline was low. And I, it was it was kind of like I just woke up one day and I was like, OK, this is it. I got to write this book because I had collected a 50 page notebook, eight and a half by 11 sheets of, of material that I went through with my clients and notes. I And I had this, this stuff and, and I was like, I have to put this in a book. I just this is what has to happen. Next. And I was so into writing. That's the other part of this whole thing is I I took up writing as a craft in 2000. So. So I think of myself as a writer who happens to write about poker, not a poker player who happens to write. Okay. So I am constant student of writing and I've always wanted to write a book. So I had strong, strong motivation, you know, of multiple types to, to stop the poker and the coaching and write elements of poker. Oh, oh, and one more thing. And it says this in the book, I wanted to get some of this stuff down for future clients. That really was a big motivator because what happened was like, say the concept of reciprocality. I'd meet with the client. I would teach them the, a concept that they didn't know. And then maybe we would get around to looking at how it could affect them personally. OK, well, the coaching got much better when I had the book because people could read the book in advance. They could come to me and say, hey, I want to talk about this, this, this and this. They already know the concept, and then we could directly start working on their life, their situation, their game. So that was a big part of, a, you know, any, any coach that has a book that sort of reflects their coaching methodology and philosophy is going to greatly accelerate the progress and uh, 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 the likelihood of success with any client who reads that book because it's also a filtering system. If somebody, because my books have a little bit of, you know, humor to them, right? Well, if somebody reads my book and they're reasonably entertained and they like the content and then they hire me, chances are very good that we're going to do good work together. In fact, I don't take any clients that just come to me out of the blue. If somebody writes to me and says, hey, I heard you're a great coach. I want you to hire me. And they, they aren't familiar with any of my material. I, I won't take them on. It just doesn't go well. <clears throat> you know, the trust. What happens is by reading my, my books or, or watching the videos, and this is true, not just to me, of any coach, right, is you, you get the trust established, right? It's like Elliot, you know, I've been, I've, Elliot's helped me, Elliot Rowe, he's helped me, he's helped so many players. Well, he was able to help me because I trusted him. And the reason I trusted him is I had already heard him talk, right? So that's another, that's another purpose that books serve for coaches.
Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a good point. Um, and fascinating to me is that your second book took seven years. Yeah. So he took seven years away yeah. from anything else but the book. Yep. It's yep. wow. <laughs> Did you not feel after like four and a half years that <laughs> maybe it's taking too long? No, no. The words too long never occurred to me. <laughs> They just don't because every day is the same when you're writing for me. You know, it really is. It's just a process and of editing and revising. But that particular book, Painless Poker, is kind of funny because uh, – At any point along the way, if anybody asked me how much, how, when is the book going to be done? I would say, I would give, I would say two years. And every single time I meant it, I mean, I would have bet on it. Right? So that's, it shows you the unpredictability of it all. I mean, it's like I worked on it for three years and then basically like reorganized the whole thing. You know, you just don't know, you know, how these things are going to go. Um, but since then, um, I've written a couple other books. I don't know if you've heard about Waiting for Straighters. I do want to yeah, mention that. I heard about that. And I heard that about that last one. Oh, I don't know if that's the last one, but I heard about that little meditation book that you wrote. Right. Dailiness. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Waiting for Straighters is a fairly short book. It's available for free on my website in web format. You can get the ebook and the audiobook. And it's, it's half of it is about No Limit Hold'em, half of it is about PLO. And it's about pre-flop. It's a, it's the whole book is about pre-flop strategy on those two games. And dailiness is a book is my only non-poker book. And it's, a, and the subtitle is how to sustain a meditation practice. And the whole idea is this book is it, is it teaches the most viable lesson I think I've learned about anything, which is if you have the discipline to establish some kind of daily practice of any kind, that never ever wavers, then that could be the seed that you can just grow anything from that. And just to use myself as an example, I, in the last seven years, I've learned how to play banjo and harmonica like really well. You know, I had never touched either one of them, but it's because I practice every day. I play every day, right? And so um, these are the types of things, what I've learned from my coaching, it's like, If you're under 30, it's pretty much impossible to realistically think you're going to establish a daily meditation practice that that sticks. But you got to keep trying, you know, start and stop. Somewhere over 40, between 40 and 50 is still rather challenging. But it seems like once people get to be about 50, it, it becomes easier to implement new disciplines in your life. I'll just throw that out there. But... Uh, there are some young players I have coached who have done it, who they're like, it, they see the wisdom of a meditation practice. First, they have to do it for a little while. And they're like, okay, I can do this. But generally speaking, it's the people that are the most fucked up. That's usually how it works. It's like when people bounce along the bottom, which is what I did a number of times, which is why I was able to kind of recover because I just been through so much pain. Well, I'm, I'm more motivated, you know, somebody like uh, Jonathan Little, He's probably never going to establish a daily minute. I don't know. I mean, just pulled his hat out of the bag because I was watching him. But he just seems to have his stuff so together that he's never needed it. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, like people that have suffered greatly from depression or addiction and various things, they're a little bit more motivated to try whole life turnarounds. 
right? But for every single person on earth, I truly believe that anytime you decide to make yourself still, that is this essence of the practice, no matter what you call it, where you just decide, okay, that's it. Now, now my ability to take that breath right there is only exists because of a lot of training. That's what a lot of things people don't realize about meditation. It's like, it's a training. It's, a, it's like learning a musical instrument. It's not something you just come in and you can just sit down and do, right? You have to train before you even get good enough at it before it even has benefit. That's why so few people get through that early learning curve. I want to touch upon something that you said about, you know, people in their 50s seem to pick up the habit of meditation much, much easier, right? And I want to look into it because not only the habit of meditation, but in general, like a habit that is a part of your daily routine, which is an mm -hmm. important yeah. thing because as we know, obviously in, in poker or any other endeavor that you do, consistency is key and mm -hmm. having good habits is, is very important. But my thoughts on this, could it be so that people in their 50s, if they try, if they decide, well, I want to do meditation, they really put in a lot of thought into it. Say people in their 20s, they're just going to try 50 different things and most of them don't stick. Yeah. Could that be the reason that, you know, maybe somebody in their 50s actually approaches it with much more thought behind it and is much more resolved to actually make it stick. So maybe it's not an age thing. Yeah. It's just the way you approach the... the you right. Know, building the habit. Well, well, right. But that ability to approach it in that way comes from having lived so many years on on earth mm -hmm. but yeah the the um just patience you know it, like if we all lived to be a million we would eventually all get to be where we're patient and tiltless but but it's just it's just hard to get there you know in the span of a human lifetime you know real patience real contentment and and i i think maybe the older we get the more we can see the cycles of starting and stopping and, and, and uh, I don't know, just, just the natural slowing down of, that we go through as we age. I think all of these things make, it, make an older person a little more uh, warm to meditation. I think the other thing is the aspect of patience is wanting a quick return on the investment. You know, a younger person are like, okay, well, I, I sat still for five minutes yesterday. How come I'm still angry? You know, you know, you know what I mean? You, the, a lot of people, they want to they get away. They want to do the least they can, work it into the busy schedule, you know, check a box, and then hope that they're going to get great benefit. Well, the thing with these kind of practices, whether it's exercise, a great example is weightlifting or weight loss. Either way, let's say you're trying to build five pounds of muscle. Or let's say you, you're trying to lose 50 pounds of fat, either one. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of work, daily effort, right? Consistency. That's exactly, but, but if you've got somebody that's, say, 100 pounds overweight, and they, there's going to be a boom where they're ready to reform, right? Everything's great. I'm going to reform. I'm going to cut out my carbs and blah, blah, blah. And then a, couple, a month goes by, they lost 10 pounds. Now, this is the moment of truth. Are they going to keep it going? 
or slide back. It's exactly the same thing happens with meditation. Somebody can meditate for a couple months. They're like, wow, this is really good. I feel great now. Oh, I don't need meditation anymore. You know, it, there's so many ways to fall off the wagon. That, that's why the, the main message of dailiness is not just that dailiness is important, but that you have to plan in advance for all the things that are going to throw you off. Travel, being sick, being hungover. These are very specific situations that I go through in the book because having coached so many people and watched them start and stop on meditation practices and all other uh, disciplinary things they want to do, what throws them off? You know, you're going to the gym three times a week for two months, but then you go on a vacation and you stop and you come back and you don't go to the gym for six months. We've all been through this, right? How can we break those patterns and just like actually be healthy forever. You know, that's kind of what, that's, that's the uh, sort of the, the dream that a lot of us have, but it is possible if there's a huge commitment to daily practice that doesn't waver no matter what. I want to hear about your approach of um, perhaps instilling the, you know, the good habits for, for people. And I want to, give this this view on this uh i often see myself that people who are winning things are good right mm -hmm. really don't feel the need for improvement right the famous quote of uh, barry greenstein is show me a, a guy who hasn't gone, gone broke yet i'll show you a poker player who has still a lot to learn right yeah. you never feel the need to really invest in the studies, to, to really be focused on that, unless uh, things are going bad, because then we're trying to fix them, right? Uh, so in my experience, people who have the daily habit, who have this, a routine, say the same as the meditation routine, but part of their routine would be uh, the study routine. People who have that, they turn out to be the most successful because well it's it's you know they don't have to wait for that downswing to to start working on their game how do you work with your clients on this issue like how do you try to if you do mm -hmm. instill some sort of habits uh that sort of work for them yeah well what i do is i i i try to work with where they're at now and, not, and, and only propose ideas that are doable according to them, right? So let's say, um, and, and, and you've been talking on the presumption that we're talking about pros or serious amateurs, yeah. people, you know, because I, I do coach a lot of bad players who aren't pros. I coach a lot of small stake players who's at, who don't even have aspirations. But for our sake, we're talking about really sharp players that want to, you know, make a steady living. I try to work with, you know, if, if I'm talking to someone and we come up with an idea and they're like, okay, well, I, I want to, um, I'm only playing, I'm an online grinder and I'm playing three hours a day and I want to get up to five. Typical type of thing I hear, right? Well, then we go through their day. You know, what's your typical day? What time you get up? Blah, blah, blah. And then I'll say, well, what do you, what would, what would your optimal day look like? You know, what would your perfect day look like? And we describe that. 
And then we're like, okay, so here's one of the things that you're not doing. And they'll say, yeah, I don't think I can do that. And I'm like, okay, well, you can't do that now. You know, what are the baby steps to get us there? So I think it's really important for the coaching relationship, but just as we coach ourselves, as we try to prove ourselves, that we don't just set goals that we know we can't do anyway, because that just creates more frustration. You know, a big part of improvement is having accomplishments. I go through this one with my music students all the time. It's like you have to learn enough each day that you're motivated to keep going, but not feel that you're frustrated that you're not learning enough. And so I think that's that's what we have to do as poker students is work within our capabilities. Don't try to run before we walk, you know, and it comes back to patience. Like if somebody, a typical typical client would be, say, an online grinder, and they're like, you know, I make all my money on the Sunday millions, but if I lose, I usually go blow, you know, a bunch of money on cash games Monday or whatever. So that's their leak, right, is the, is the blowback from the losing. Well, that cannot be cured in a conversation with me. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. Big stuff like that, we're talking about big holes that need filled, the egoish kind of stuff. And there's lots of things known about that, right? What I maybe can help with is the baby steps that can maybe move them toward that. But I really believe that when it comes to big issues like, you know, uh, boredom, um, just being uh, envious, all, all, all the major mental issues that make us play bad or make us feel bad, I don't think there's any way out of those that doesn't involve a very long, very gradual process. Um, either meditation or going to church or having a therapist, but it needs to be viewed as something that can't just be fixed that it is a, a long, slow process. And that in itself might be why the 50-year-olds have an advantage because they've been living long enough, they can actually see, okay, I can fix this anger issue I have with my mother, but it's going to take a while. You know, that's the patience I'm talking about to fix the real issues. All right. And since you've mentioned that you you, you work with a lot of, as you said, bad players with little yeah. aspirations... I'm mm -hmm. curious to know, have you noticed um, or what are the biggest differences that you noticed between the two groups of people, you know, the, the top professionals that you saw and uh, a more of a, you know, recreational sort of bad player? What sets them apart? Well, I mean, the recreational... Okay, so there's, all kind of, there's two kinds of recreational bad player. There's the ones that just go play. And then there's the ones who actually give a shit enough to hire a coach. So mm -hmm. anybody who actually hires me has some kind of game to their game. You know, they want to get better. They're not just complete ding-dongs, right? Um, but, but the difference is, I mean, largely, uh, boy, I mean, it's just different people. You know, there's personality differences. There's, um, there's uh, their life path. You know, I mean, the young, the classic model of the young pro, you know, is like some of these guys could have gone to college to become a lawyer, but they went to do poker instead. 
right? A lot of the people I coach are more like the classic degenerate model. You know, the only way they ever got into poker was kind of as a, a naughty side thing, right? They, it, and now they've, they're doing it enough. They're like, oh, I want to, you know, get better at the game so that I'm not losing my weekly paycheck every week. I mean, it, it, it's life circumstances, you know. A lot of the people I coach were, were never uh, – it never dawned on them to play poker for a living. You know what I mean? But you can have somebody like me who I heard about. I heard the term professional poker player when I was like 17. And this was 50 years ago. And it never left my mind. You know what I mean? So when you say the differences, I know when you ask that question, you're thinking maybe about strategic differences or. Not so much the strategic, just in the way people capacity. approach approach the way they think about, um, well, you kind of pointed it out that, you know, for some it's clear, it's a profession. We take it seriously and all the things that come with it for, for yeah. others. It doesn't even occur that it can be a profession that I can take it seriously. I can, you know, really go next level with this thing. Right. Yeah. But you said, so you got like, once you heard the term professional poker player never left your mind. Yeah. Why? What? What? Uh, drew? drew I just thought it was idea. the coolest thing in the world. I mean, I, at that point, I was going to be. I wanted to be an astronaut, and All I right. thought professional poker player. That's even better. You know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I just like how could there be anything better in the world? And, and it's like, so then I, I sort of accidentally had a had a music career from like ages twenty to thirty where I was playing five or six nights a week in a band full time playing poker with my buddies at my house and then and then during that whole time I had it in my mind oh, when I'm too old to rock and roll maybe I'll I'll play poker for a living and I really was thinking like in my 50s right and then one thing led to another and I just dove right in you know I was 32 when I left the band and became full time poker player um yeah, it's just, I, I, I couldn't imagine any other, you know, people ask me, like, how did you choose to become a professional poker player? I didn't choose it. it. I was chosen. Okay, I was so addicted to playing poker that I absolutely had to learn how to make a living at it so that I could play all day long every day. That's really how I became a pro poker player was complete tunnel vision. <laughs> there was absolutely nothing else I wanted to do. <laughs> and of course, since you started so long ago, you, you sort of rode the whole wave of the evolution of poker. Back in the day, I suppose the main game should have been Limit Hold'em. Maybe you, you were playing Stud. Um, yep. Then when did No Limit Hold'em come into scene? It's the 90s, basically, right? No. So here, what happened was I was also one of the very first people to play online. I was playing at Paradise Poker and Ultimate Bet. <laughs> In 1998, 1998, so I played the um, online poker started online with one idea, which was the max buy-in. There had never been a max buy-in in any casino ever until No Limit started online. I mean, in a No Limit game, right, or a Pot Limit game. That was genius. That made it possible online. And so then they had the 25 max game, 50 max game, 100 max game at Party Poker. I was playing those. And um, I lost track of the question. 
Yeah. Well, when when did uh, No Limit Hold'em become sort of the? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that started online around 2001. Okay. And then it took about three years for it to move into the live casinos. And the way that works is just like with any other game. In theory, a group of people walk in and they say, "Hey, you're not playing No Limit Hold'em, but if you did, me and my 20 buddies will come." We're like, "All right." So the casino started playing No Limit Hold'em. Now, um, that was around 2004 is when it started being in casinos. And, and, but here's a neat little history thing, and, which gave me a huge leg up on this whole evolution, as you called it. Um, up until uh, then, 2004, five, when places like, you know, the Venetian started spreading No Limit Hold'em, There was only one place in the world that had publicly run No Limit Games and had had it since 1987, which was the Bay Area right here in California, okay? Not LA, up here, right? They had No Limit Hold'em somewhere every day. I moved here in 1997. And so I was playing about one third of my hours No Limit Hold'em, two thirds of my hours Limit Hold'em from 1997 I mean, I'm talking 50 hours a week um, up until right up till 2004 when the explosion happened. And so this put me ahead of the game when it became in terms of able to coach No Limit Hold'em. I had already been playing it a lot right when the whole world suddenly wanted to learn how to play. So that was a very lucky circumstance in terms of my income and also my ability to coach, you know, the new wave of players that were coming in and they'd played nothing but no limit hold ever do you think we're gonna have other games becoming more popular oh absolutely yes um one of the lines in painless poker is uh while the game forever changes the pain remains the same but the uh, but the game does keep changing i mean look you know plo i used to play plo back in the 90s uh And they had a PLO game back in um, one of the places in L.A., uh, the racetrack, and a 5-5, and that was it. And now all of a sudden it's huge. And nobody could have predicted that. And online, you have all these new games showing up. And it's a, this is a classic evolutionary process. Mutations arise, and then nature decides which ones survive. And that's how it's always been with poker. That's how Limit Hold'em started because the casinos were making more money dealers are making more money twice as many hands an hour the players loved it the casino loved it and so it caught like wildfire everywhere right Mm -hmm. and that's just how it goes with with poker so there's no way to predict what people are going to be playing down the road in my opinion right so with that in mind what qualities are sort of key for longevity for a poker player Uh, mental stability. I don't think there's anything else. We just have to assume that anybody serious about wanting to play poker already has the brain wattage that's required, right? And a lot of people are really smart. So so it isn't just a matter of, um, you know, like if, if you're smart and then there's another guy who's smarter than you and you both do everything exactly the same in your life stuff, then yeah, he's going to have a tiny edge over you because he just was born with a little bit more higher brain power. But that's not really where where the money is. It's in training. 
you know, it's in training yourself to be consistent. And and actually, I believe that ultimately for somebody to really succeed at poker, they have to train themselves to be where they are grateful to be playing poker. I think and I've talked to a lot of people about this, that this seems to be like the final thing. You know, there are a lot of people that are grinding, that are making their living, but it isn't like they love going to work. It isn't like they're just sitting there at the table with a smile on their face. But if you can get to that point, then you kind of got it made because then poker becomes not just your income and not just something you kind of look forward to, but something you're actually like grateful for, you know. And, and and gratitude has helped me get through so many bad beats and bad runs and dead card deadness. You know, I just tell myself, man, it's Tuesday afternoon. I'm sitting here playing poker. I mean, how friggin' bad can it be? I'm not allowed to complain. I'm just not allowed to complain any moment while I'm playing poker, my favorite thing. You know, so these are some of the mental tricks that that can that I think are part of a mentally healthy, long range uh, poker mindset. Right. So speaking of tilt and tiltlessness, which you've mentioned several times, what do you think are are some of the best things that people can do to sort of eliminate the tilt in their game? Mm -hmm. Well, there's no elimination. There's reduction. Mm -hmm. It's always just a matter of reduction. Okay. And when you think of it that way, then you have the different timescales. There's how do you reduce the the and we'll just call it pain or tilt or tilt causing sensations, whatever you want to cause it. How do you how how can you reduce that in the moment? Well, the first uh, requirement is awareness. You have to be aware that you're tilting, which does require stepping outside of your thoughts for a second. That's the hardest thing. That's what the meditation training does or any other kind of training along these lines. So you have to be able to in, in the moment. I believe the best thing that anyone can do is sit up straight and consciously exhale. Anytime you put your attention on your posture in any way, even if you're just sitting there at the table and you decide to put your hands like this on purpose, that is a moment of mindfulness and that is a split second of tiltlessness. At that moment, you are not suffering the pain of the bad beat. And I'm talking about a microsecond. You have chosen to take your focus of your thinking and from wherever it was mindlessly to something mindful. So anytime you put attention on your body in any way, that's mindful. Anytime you know when you're breathing in or out, that's mindful. And what I do is I have a little pre-hand, pre-hand drill. I play only live poker and I, and I, um, I sit up, I take a breath, and I scan the stacks. I just look at the stacks. That way, I'm, not only do I get information, but it's just a, it's a little mental routine I have to bring me to the table. So if I was watching TV or if I was texting my wife, boom, I'm focused. So now those focusing techniques, you asked about tilt, but those do undo the tilt because tilt is thought. That's all it is, right? It's just thought. It's not a thing. So anytime you can use your focusing training to focus on the here and now, that is a tool, among other tools, that can reduce your tilt in the moment. The long-range reduction requires some sort of training and contemplation and effort 
away from the table. And then that opens it up to a number enormous things. It could be therapy. It could be books. It could be just talking to your best poker buddy who also has tilt trouble and, and like working together as a, like a little club or whatever. So there's tremendous amounts of things that can and should be done away from the table. But the main thing is that you're making that the priority. That's kind of what I was talking about before. If you decide I'm going to do a daily practice every day, no matter what, and put it above your wife and your kids and everything, well, shit will happen. If you put tilt reduction as the top priority of your life as a poker player and put learning strategy second, then things are going to happen. You'll figure out what to do. Yeah, it's such a powerful advice. Uh, you know, because anytime when you sort of become aware there is a problem, you're already halfway through solving the problem. You know, because as mm -hmm. you said, tilt is just thoughts, it's just in your mind. So just this little act of realizing that this is happening already yeah. is, you know, you're halfway there. You are, yes. The frustrating thing is, is that you would think that the awareness would be enough to just make it go away, but it's not. Mm. It's just crazy how that is. And I've sat there at the table for hours in great awareness of my suffering and just suffering nonetheless. <laughs> you know. But it's, that's what makes the, you know, the fruit so sweet is when you do make progress in this way, you notice it. You know, you notice it. It's like, oh, here's a conversation that used to always go badly. And now it didn't go so well. You know, you just end up you can end up becoming more generous and just more friendly overall as you learn how to not beat yourself up more, as you learn to quiet the, you know, the unpleasant noise in your mind. It, it is, you know, I use this analogy all the time, but the rising tide raises all boats. And this is definitely a case of that. The last two pages of Elements of Poker, I talk about using poker as your, uh, uh, as your area to practice getting better at life and then you use life to practice getting better at poker. You know, they do kind of all go together. I wonder once you bring this up, because for me, I, I don't even know what's the question here, but I, I tell you my uh, sort of approach to it. I view poker as a job and I make a point of leaving the job at work. You know, hmm. once I'm done okay. with my day, I'm done with my day. And the two things, the life and poker, are, are quite separate. Is uh -huh. that something that you do as well? Is it something that you do with your, your students? Because I've seen different approaches. Yeah. You know, I've seen people who are completely obsessed and fully immersed with poker, and poker is intertwined with everything they do. And you know, mm -hmm. that clearly there's also people like me who, who are separating the two, two things so much so that basically no matter how bad a day you had at the table, yeah. it pretty much doesn't have an effect of what your rest of the day looks like. Well, yeah, that's the all, to me, that's the optimum and ultimate way to do it. I used to do it like I would even score myself. It's like I would come home and if I managed to go, let's say it was a losing session. And if I managed to go like an hour without thinking about it, I was like, wow, that's good. If I go five hours, that's even better. You know, so I was always working it at 
developing that kind of separation because I think that's that's healthy, right? Mm-hmm. And in the same way, you really even if you're running good, you kind of don't want to be skipping around all the time telling yourself you're a great player. It goes goes both ways. So I think that's fine the way you're doing. And do you have like a wife and kids or anything? Or you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. well, that makes it a little easier to separate. So if somebody's living oh, alone, and it's kind of necessary mind. as well. You know, yeah. if you don't, exactly. then <laughs> the quality of life for the rest of the right. family really goes down. Right, and you. So you've had that motivator to kind of like accelerate your ability to keep it separate. In yeah, a sense, absolutely. Because you knew probably from some experiences that if you're all frumpy and depressed after losing all day, that's not good. It's no good, right? You know what? To me, it was actually way before the family and the kid uh, situation. I just, one day dawned on me that I was sitting in a restaurant with a bunch of my friends. We were having this wonderful dinner, some Mm -hmm. uh, highly rated chef, some wonderful, whatever, three course meal, great bottle of wine or a lot of bottles of wine rather. Mm -hmm. And I caught myself right around the dessert time when I figured I completely didn't, I, I don't even know what I had. The only thing on my mind was whatever happened that day, you know, whatever yeah. the, the bad beats and whatnot. And I realized this is really, really wrong. Yeah. There was no reason for that, you know, that, that thing stopped. So why am I still focused on that? I'm missing all the joy. You know, we were having, probably having or at least having a great uh, opportunity to have great conversations definitely having great food but i i didn't really yeah. enjoy any of that i i've missed it all so that particular event was like a, a big, oh, absolutely a it was a trigger you know i i went yeah, yeah. home after that and i i realized wow how long ago was go. that oh that was probably like some uh, 12 years ago 10 years ago nice yeah it, it does take moments like that um you know, mindful eating is a great example of what you described, where you do something and uh, and it's like because you were talking or distracted or whatever, and you have this great dish and it's like, oh, man, I want to start over. I forgot to pay attention to my food. Right. That's kind of like what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you were yeah. talking about a bigger scale, but the food in particular is one that we can use as a training ground. OK. And so. I've been throwing the word mindfulness around. What is that? I'm just curious what that word means to you. Define mindfulness for me. Find mindfulness in uh, in the context of poker or in general? No, like, like, you know, your kid comes up to you and he says, hey, I heard about mindfulness. What is that? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I'm <laughs> dreading these <laughs> situations because my kid is uh, a year and a half now. So he, okay, he, well, doesn't, got, got he didn't start years. yet with his uh, questions, <laughs> but I reckon it's going to start soon. So, all right, let's, let's practice. Well, mindfulness, to explain mindfulness to a kid, wow, that's, that's quite a challenge. Well, let's see. I would assume, like the way I see mindfulness myself and that's probably something too complex for a kid at least the way i would describe it but for myself Uh it is when i'm aware of the moments that i'm in sort of i'm present to what i'm doing you know whether it's playing poker and i'm i'm in the moment i'm 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 playing poker you mentioned food and uh, it's the same thing you're having dinner you enjoy that food. You enjoy the conversation mm-hmm. that uh, maybe goes with the dinner, but you know. And to me, that also there was a well. It, probably a few years ago, I kind of made 
a resolution to myself. I never bring my phone to the dinner table. In fact, oh, I don't even I don't even bring it to the living room. Nice. Because you know, just the even if you just hear the little yeah. beep. Oh yeah. You're always like, ah, you know, it, it brings your thoughts away. And there's really no oh. need. Yeah, that that thing can wait. If somebody wants to text me 9 p.m., it probably is not extremely urgent, right? So yeah. No, that's great. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna just clarify a little things about a couple of things about mindfulness. Um and use eating as an example. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's been defined in a lot of ways, but, and everything you said is correct, but you can get more specific, you know, so anytime you consciously decide to listen to what's around you. So you're walking down the street and you decide I'm going to listen to the cars. Okay. Or you are sitting at the poker table and you decide I'm going to listen to the sound of the chip shuffling. Okay, that's like hardcore mindfulness, right? So there's basically you it, it's it's awareness of your surroundings on purpose without judging. That's also a key part of the definition, which is kind of impossible, but it's in there. And any and then also specific awareness of your physical presence. But then here's the third one: mindfulness of your thoughts themselves. We touched on this, it's, you know, the wedge of awareness. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm aware that I'm angry right now, or I'm aware that I'm enjoying this beautiful sunset right now. When you actually can step outside and witness your own thoughts, that is mindfulness of your own thinking. And that's like the super powerful kind. Um, and so you can use mindful, you can use eating as training. Anyone can for mindfulness and two really good things happen. One, you get the training and two, you get to enjoy your food more. Okay, so the way you can use Mindful eating to train is um, basically just sitting there eating. And what you do is any number of these things. Okay. You, you stop, you put the food in and like close your eyes and just chew. And picture the food in your mouth. Think about the food. Swallow. Picture it going down. That's what mindful eating is. You're totally focused on nothing else but the eating. Right. You got food in your mouth. So your mind is thinking about the food in your mouth and nothing else. OK, now the the biggest thing that anybody can do to make their eating more mindful is sit their utensil down. That's it. So you're sitting there and you're eating your bowl of soup and and utensil down. <sighs> Just that. OK puts that little wedge of awareness. And you're like, oh, now I'm going to go a little more slowly. I'm going to eat more mindfully. Um, another thing you can do is smaller bites. Whatever it is you're doing. Let's say you're, you know, you're cutting up your sausage or whatever. And you have your normal size bite. And you normally have some veggies with that. And you put this big glob of food in your mouth. And it's already half masticated anyway because it's soft. And eight chews later, it's gone. You could get three whole bites out of that and chew slower and chew longer. And and what was a 15 second eating experience can be a minute and a half out of the same amount of food with the utensil down. If you take presence and awareness to the act of eating and you decide, hmm, I'm going to slow down now. 
when I'm eating, let's say my wife and I are eating um, in front of the TV, okay? Well, that's a really hard situation to be mindful while you're eating, right? So that's part of the whole thing. It's like if you really want to do hardcore mindful eating, you shut everything else out. Mm -hmm. And you just sit there with your food and you eat. That's, that's extreme. In the meantime, you use that as training so that let's say you're out at a restaurant and you're having a fancy meal, right? And you scarf down the first three bites, but because you've been training here at home, you're like, hey, I'm gonna stop now. I sit my utensil down, I'm gonna listen, enjoy the conversation for a couple of seconds, and then my next bite of food, I'm gonna pay attention. I'm gonna chew that sucker and I'm gonna swallow it, and I'm gonna enjoy every molecule. That's what mindful eating is. Mm. And it is training for all forms of mindfulness. Interesting. I, I would like to talk more about this mindful eating. I'm, I'm very big on eating. I love eating. You know, I, I, I like good food. I like good uh, drink. I like great restaurants. I like to uh -huh. cook. Um, yeah. All those things. So food, food, food is a huge topic for me. But mm -hmm. I wonder, how do we translate this mindfulness practice mm -hmm. to poker? Let's talk about live poker first, because obviously two separate things, live poker and yeah. online poker. So how yeah. does that translate? What is mindfulness in poker? Okay. Mindfulness is exactly the same. It's awareness of your body, awareness of your surroundings, and awareness of your own thinking. Those three things. That's it. And by awareness, that means intentional, non-judging awareness. And non-judging means... Not rating, not comparing. So this is, this is part of the mental gymnastics that you put yourself through thousands of times, not hundreds of times, thousands of times over years. And you can get to a point where the drunk asshole doesn't bother you anymore. Whatever it is that pushed your buttons at the poker table that made you lose money and made you unhappy can be eliminated or gradually reduced, whatever it is. So let's say you're a type of person like me used to be certain dealers used to just set me off. I would just like, I would, I would, I would hate some dealers so much that I would just like quit for half an hour. Right. And then, then I got better. I got past that, but I would see other people getting all frustrated with dealers or ready to blame the dealer for anything, or he's too slow or he talks too much or whatever. Now through years of gradual transformation, I love every dealer no matter what. It doesn't matter what they do. I mean, what an enormous difference that is. I used to run away from the table because of a deal I didn't like. And that will never happen to me again. Impossible. Nothing even close to that. That's, a, that's why they, you know, there's a book by Thich Nhat Hanh called The Miracle of Mindfulness. And it does seem kind of miraculous that you can have like certain angry conversations with your siblings or parents that have been the same for 20 years and all of a sudden they stop. I mean, how can you not call that a miracle? Mm -hmm. But it happens only because of your own effort. So mindfulness at the poker table means sitting up, breathing, meaning I'm aware I'm breathing in, I'm aware I'm breathing out. It means looking at your opponents and instead of feeling resentment or anger or envy, train yourself to feel compassion and joy that you get to share this game together. You need them there or else there wouldn't be any poker. Um, so mindfulness means 
witnessing that you're not paying attention to the game and then intentionally paying attention to the game. It's that simple. So, so there's research that shows that cell phones can are a drain on cognitive uh, uh, power, even by being in your pocket. They don't even have to go off. Just knowing that you that people might be texting you or whatever isn't is enough to actually. There's been scientific tests where people did cognitive work, and I, I read that Lee and Jones and I put that in one of our episodes. It was like, wow. So now when I play, I leave my phone in the car, and yeah, it's better. I had it in my jacket pocket, right? But let's say that I had my phone there. A typical player, you got your phone, and a hand comes up and you're distracted, you're on the phone, and you decide, oh, I'm going to do mindfulness now, whatever. The, and so you're just like, one breath, there you go. That's a perfect score, you know, because the mindfulness is only this long, right? It lasts for a moment, and then you go back to mindlessness. Then you are aware that you're mindless, and then you make yourself mindful for some brief moment. And you keep going back and forth, and that's the training. So that's what mindfulness looks like at the poker table. Hmm. Online is a lot harder, okay, when you're multi-tabling online. Because with, with live poker, you do have a natural flow. There's a natural gap in, in the game, right, while the dealer's shuffling. And you can train yourself to become mindful during that moment. <clears throat> online is much trickier, and the, the one piece of advice I give all my clients that has – worked for some of them, which is to get out of your chair uh, more often than you do now. And by that, I mean, like have a timer or something and just go like this, walk around, do a little squat, do a little stretch and sit down there. That takes some that takes effort. If you're if you're lost in that place, we get in where there's just you and the computer and the hands and, you know, it's never going to stop. You might not have much trouble with that at your level, but a lot of people do. They just get in this crazy zone where they'll play, you know, a really long time. And, and sometimes all it takes is one smack of some kind, one little wake up call. And they're like, ah, you know, come back. Well, if you train yourself to just get up out of the chair now and then, that might provide a wake-up call sometimes. You know, just one of those little things we can do. Interesting. There's, there's one thing I want to expand on in the discussion of live and online, and I play a lot of both. So mm -hmm. I, I have the experience and with the specific thing that I want to address, which is flow. But let's let's get back to it. Let's keep it in our mind. Because first, okay. I want to address something which I found very, very interesting, which you said about how, how your attitude towards dealers changed over time. Yeah. Right. And from my experience, I see that many times, many people who get angry at the dealers, it's a sort of outlet to put the blame on something else which online yeah. poker players don't have at all, right? We can't, well, you can get angry yeah. at, the, at the randomizer software or right. unfairness right. of the poker set, but that's just yeah. stupid, right? Because, well, clearly, yeah. clearly you're wrong. The facts say right. you're wrong. Whereas, you know, this, this dealer being a human in a casino environment, it's so easy to 
assign the blame. Well, he made a mistake. It's his fault. He broke, yeah. you know, it's just, there's so many excuses to put there. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because we need sometimes to put the blame somewhere. Ideally, yeah. we should realize that, listen, there's no blame to be put. It's just, it's all up to us. You can only control so much. You can only control your decisions. So focus on them. You know, make the best decisions yeah. you can. Don't don't care about the rest of the things. But that being said, emotionally, sometimes it's important for us to sort of vent these emotions in one direction yeah. or the other. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing that online we don't have this outlet in the face of a dealer? Well, it depends on the person. I mean, yeah, blaming it, uh, others or, or the universe or whatever for our own shortcomings is a defense mechanism. And, and any kind of defense mechanism like that is a least of evils. So by blaming the dealer, that if you look at their, that person's pain structure, like if you were to like quantify their pain, it could be that that process is less painful for them than just taking it in the face and blaming themselves, right? Mm -hmm. For their mistake. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, so it, when people do these kinds of things, so yeah, for some people that don't have the, the, the blame the dealer ability at online poker, that could cause other issues for them. You know, like the pain could percolate inside of them because it doesn't vent and cause them to play worse. You know, we used to talk about kicking the dog in the old days, but I mean, the whole idea that you need something, some way to blow off steam and all that. I mean, that's not a new idea. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think that I, I mean, I've had a lot of clients that they play online, but they still think the game's rigged. Even though they know it's not, they kind of think it is. It allows them to have some blame mechanism in there. Like maybe it isn't my fault you know, kind of thing. Uh, I think that the word blame and the whole process of blaming is one of the key words that anyone who is going to, say, walk a spiritual path, and I mean secularly spiritual path of reducing their own suffering and trying to help reduce the amount of suffering in the world, that blame is one of the key, key things that we can point a finger at and say, okay, that's a bad thing. It doesn't matter if you're blaming somebody else or you're being blamed. It's always pain. It's never, ever anything but pain and hurt. Okay. And so anytime you can catch yourself about to blame someone else for something and you don't do it, to me, this is like one of the most generous acts there is. Right. Especially if they deserve, deserve it. Right. So let's say you've got, you know, your gardener or whatever, you know, accidentally cuts down your wife's favorite roses or something, you know, what if you didn't blame the guy? What if you didn't give him any shit at all? Right. So anytime we see blaming or witness blaming in ourselves or others, that's like red flag. So back to the online poker thing. One of our natural tendencies is to blame ourselves and beat ourselves up. Okay, this is one of these things that can be gradually undone over time through awareness, through witnessing the cycle of blaming, through reading about it, therapy, uh, pot, whatever. There's so many ways that we can make our mental lives a little easier. But one of them is focusing in on the key words 
boredom. You know, make it a lifelong mission to undo boredom. Make it a lifelong mission to not blame people for shit, especially when it's your own stuff, <laughs> which is what happens a lot of times. Yeah. Um, I know I got way off the question about <laughs> online, uh, but yeah, online is really hard mentally. I mean, I quit online completely in 2003. I've never played a hand since then because I developed a form of tilt that was so bizarre and so scary. I just like, this is just weird. I mean, like, I, I did like complete demolition tilt sometimes. I was playing 1530 limit hold'em and my graph looked like this. No matter what I played online, I had like the steadiest graph when I was playing my best. It didn't matter if I was playing $20 sit and goes, whatever, right? And then I would, and I would, I was, you know, rough cashing out like a thousand a week. I mean, I did that for on and off for about five years. And then every once in a while, I would go into a 1530 game and do the thing that I, I would never allow myself to do. And just like, you know, four bet with 10-9 or whatever, just like crazy, complete insanity shit. And I, and I eventually would had to step back and be like, I'm nuts. I'm crazy. Online poker's made me crazy. And maybe it's because I wasn't able to vent in, in the traditional ways. That's what I'm getting at. You know, something completely popped. The, the, and there's the anonymity, you know, in the casino, I had enough pride. I was never going to like turn over some completely ridiculous hand. Right. Mm -hmm. But online, nobody knew. So I could just do whatever I wanted. So my point there is online is very dangerous mental place, in my opinion. It's, you know, a lot of crazy things happen there. A lot of people have developed alcohol dependency along with online poker, which is what happened to me. I quit them both at the same time. So there's a lot of rough stuff goes on and. And, you know, when you're all alone with yourself on a computer screen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you pointed out uh, a key issue here, you know, that you don't have another mechanism to vent. I mean, mm -hmm. you sure, some people break their mouse and break their computer, whatever. Yeah. And again, it's just silly, but at least, it, you know, once you break your mouse, you're not going to forbet with anything because, well, you can't forbet it anymore. Right. Yeah, the mouse is broken, right? right? But uh, yeah, this, this ability to vent in the live games, it probably helps some people, you know, because mm -hmm. I see guys who don't express any tilt, yet it's clear that they're tilting. Yeah. That's probably worse it. than the guys who just go apeshit and then walk away from the table and then feel slightly embarrassed, come back and keep playing. Right, right. And again, obviously, the best thing is to just, you know, not have these problems or reduce these problems as much as you can. But, you know, it's uh, for some people who, who can't, you know, probably won't. And it's not like I'm encouraging, <laughs> you know, the people start going apeshit at the, at the poker table. But uh, it does help some guys, you know. But please step away from the table. Don't embarrass yourself and, uh, you know, don't make life miserable for everybody else around you. But let's get back to this thing that I wanted to touch upon, the, the state of flow. And I don't know what's your opinion on, on the state of flow. Do you believe in a phenomena? Um, but I'll tell you sort of the, the story that comes to my mind, right? Okay. As I said, I play a lot of live poker and online poker. Well, obviously nowadays, just online poker right. as, as all right. of us, right? But um, in online poker, I very often experience what 
you could describe as a state of flow where basically you know the the flow of time kind of disappears you don't you don't sense the time anymore and it's just clarity of decisions and yeah you're just full focus doesn't matter how many tables it's just clarity of decisions you you're really in the moment you are present you know this mindfulness thing that we was we were discussing earlier you know you really feel present in the moment etc etc so online that happens to me quite often live I don't think it ever happened to me. But oh, of really? course, because these are two different ways, like to me, when I'm playing online, there's no distraction. It's full focus on one thing and one thing only, and it can be a lot of tables, so it's a, a lot of hands per hour. Whereas yeah. when I'm playing live, I'm very much still mindful you know, of the experience and enjoying, hopefully, if the conversation is good at the table, then enjoying the conversation, enjoying... You know, whatever something on on the TV, it could be you know a good baseball game. Well, mm-hmm. well, you know, I'm exaggerating. I'm not a big <laughs> baseball fan, but let's yeah. say a basketball game, right? Okay. But mostly, you know, when I'm in Vegas in summer, it's usually just baseball because <laughs> everything else is off season. Right. Um, but bec- and also because it's so slow, you you pretty much get like twenty hands per hour at best in Potlamid Omaha. I don't think I ever experienced, you know, that full focus throughout the whole time. Yeah. And I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just, it's a completely yeah. different, it's a completely different well, it environment. Well, it is completely different. I mean, what you described it playing multiple tables online, yes, you're focused, but that's not mindfulness. I just want to clarify something. It's the, it's the opposite of mindfulness. Okay. So it's, it's essentially like you're playing a video game. Right. Where, where you're just completely consumed because there's enough to engage every little corner of your mind, mm-hmm. right? Everything's being taken up. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say, like, not so much the mindfulness is what I'm referring to here, but the, I know, the, I know. The, I just want to clarify that you, right. you did use that word, right? Yeah, so, yeah. flow, yes, it's not mindfulness. So, flow can be forced anytime you're doing something that requires your attention. Mm -hmm. So a race car driver cannot afford one second lapse in concentration for the entire race, but he doesn't need to be reminded of that. It doesn't take any effort. So you could call that flow in the same way that playing multi-tabling online is flow. You're forced into a flow situation because you put yourself in a situation where your brain is completely engaged with what's in front of you, right? Um, you know, basketball game or whatever, a pro basketball player, you know, while they're out there dribbling around, they could say, okay, they're in flow. They're fully concentrating 100% of the time, but they have no choice. You know, that that doesn't really take work. You don't get like bonus points for achieving flow there. Now, if you can achieve that state of concentration at a live poker game, then you really are like a Michael Jordan of poker because of all the gaps, because of all the distractions. You, You know, but if you can do that, which you haven't experienced yet, it's a wonderful thing. It's it, it actually feels the same, even though you're playing live poker. And I think the only way you could achieve it is if you were to play like 
20 hours a week for six months and make it your objective to, yeah, to well, learn how to actually be in the in flow at a live game. It's uh, not easy, but it is doable. Because you know what I'm, I'm thinking about here is when I'm playing live, I usually play, oh, it's going to be like 60, maybe 80 hours a week. I'm really playing. Oh, you have played that much. All the, oh. Yeah, every time. I'm, well, I used to play like six months a year. I would play online and I would be playing live, right? Okay, but I didn't know that. It would be crazy long sessions. I um, see. And to me, I found that relaxing between the hands is more important than being fully focused, right? Because I can't maintain full focus for, let's say, a 12-hour session. Right. And I'm probably quitting after four hours because I'm exhausted. But whereas if I take it easy mm -hmm. throughout the 12 hours, you know, I can oh, for sure. function on a decent level by the end of the 12 hours still. Yeah. Right. So no, I, I find that yeah. maybe there's this difference that sort of the motivation for achieving a certain state of mind and sort of state of how focused you are is slightly different in the online and, and live environment for the for these reasons that you know online you, you're not forced to play a 12 hour session. Oh, well, yes. I don't think you're ever forced to play a 12 hour session. Well, um, yeah, sure. <laughs> Yes, relaxing during the session. Yes, very important. This needs to be part of the dance. Okay, so so what I do is I, I'm sitting up during a hand, and then in between hands, I'll, I'll lean back. I'm just leaning back, you know, mindfully, right? So I'm still aware of where I am. I'm still in complete flow, even though I'm relaxed. I'm, I don't necessarily have to be super focused on everything i'm relaxed i'm watching the game you know might close my eyes but the whole idea is that i'm doing it all on purpose right so then the dealer deals bip i come up into play position the point of all this is that relaxing in between hands absolutely is an essential part of playing a good solid long session i'm not, i didn't mean to imply that you're sitting actually sitting up straight you know super focused the entire time but but if you go an hour or two without any cell phone distraction, without any TV distraction, and you're just you're doing all of these things, and every two hours you know you're going to take a break, and you know what you're going to do on your break, and then you come back and and you know you're relaxed, you come up, you focus. That's what I mean by flow. You can develop a, a thing where you are when you sort of like come out of it. It's almost like ending your online flow session. Mm. It's like you are, your mind is in this place and then it comes out of it. Right. You know, right. and, and, and you, it is possible to create that sort of almost a shell around yourself in a live session to where everything you do is kind of is on purpose. You know, it's just not happening. You're not just letting things happen. You're in charge of yourself. That's to me is what flow. That's part of mm. what defines flow. At poker, anyway. Yeah. Now let's just for a second circle back to the online world and the state of flow in the online world because you, you've mentioned that, you know, basically playing a lot of tables sort of for, forces you into the state of flow, much like it does a race car driver. Right. I don't necessarily agree with that. With the race okay. car driver, the feedback is immediate. 
You know, if you're not focused, you're going to soon meet the wall and you find out. Right. 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 Whereas in poker, I think, to be honest, the default setting that people kind of dive into is mindlessness and it's just clicking buttons. And uh, yeah. it, it is, to me, it's the opposite of the state of flow. It's the state of just complete random confusion where you don't even realize <laughs> yeah. that you're not paying attention. You know, no, you so, make a very good point. The, the risk of not, uh, the consequence of not paying attention is far less at poker than driving. So there's going to be more of it. So, so, so how do you define your, Tell me what your flow state is like at online and your non-flow state online. Is there such a thing or do, are you always oh, in yeah, flow? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. Okay, so what's the I difference? wish I was always in flow. <laughs> I wish that would be okay. a, a magical thing. No, definitely not. I mean, the default would be somewhere in between where okay. I'm making good enough decisions. But, you know, we often talk about A game, B game, C game, right? <laughs> To me, the C game would be the game where I'm kind of mindlessly, mindlessly making decisions, you know. And okay. an, an A game would be that so, sort of state of flow where all my decisions are are consistent based on something I, I'm thinking clearly through the hand, right? Mm -hmm. So the in-between is the sort of default setting where, you know, some of the hands you're really, really zoned in. Some of mm -hmm. them are sort of slipping away. And the challenge for me there is to catch myself every time when I'm losing this focus, right? So what I do myself, my little exercises, because I still sometimes, you know, drop down to like a C game and complete just clicking buttons sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, hopefully, you know, after like two, three minutes of that, I catch myself. Mm -hmm. And I see, okay, this is not good. And uh, my my own sort of approach to this is if I catch myself once, you, you, you sort of point the finger on the problem. Okay, I'm doing this. Self-awareness. Okay, this is not good. Let's, let's focus back. I know if I catch myself another time, uh, very quickly, let's say within the next mm -hmm. 10 minutes, I make a decision that, okay, one more time and I quit. I yeah. just quit. It doesn't have to Good. be quit radically. Okay, I, I just quit the game, but I have to sit out and right. step away for five minutes. I have no Good choice. You. you know, yeah. so I sort of raise the stakes a bit mm -hmm. for myself that you know, okay, I'm not hitting the wall if I lose the focus, but I'm quitting. Right. You know? That's and, great. And it really, it really helps. Like I, I arrived to this. Um, to this approach some some well very long time ago and now it's sort of part of the routine I, I don't even notice but i know that i'm doing because i consciously some long time ago i made a decision okay this is gonna how i'm gonna approach this thing i can't expect to never drop down to the c game to never drop down to this complete autopilot but what i can do is i can minimize the amount of time i'm spending in that state of mind right so when so when you recognize that you're out of flow, is that all that you need to do? Is you just recognize it and that brings you back, or do you have any tools yeah, that you? No, it's just basically recognizing it. is, enough. is enough. Just enough, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. well, basically, straight after that, you you make a point of of thinking through each decision. 
you know because okay. very often to me the the triggers when i realize okay i was completely autopiloting usually happens somewhere on the turn or the river where i'm looking at the hand and like why is the pot so big how did i get here <laughs> Right. What was the action? You know, that's that. a that's yeah. a sure sign. Okay. Well, this is right. this is there. That. You go. No, I, that is a great example. How many tables do you play? Oh, well, that depends. I mean, I mean, what's your maximum? Ma- well, the maximum would be probably six. Oh, I okay. used to play like sixteen and uh, even twenty tables, but those yeah. those days are gone. <laughs> but Nowadays, six tables is no no problem. I mean, yeah, yeah, for you, yeah. Six tables is fine, but I mean, most you know, it's much much less because just the games don't run as as often as they used uh, to. So you're yeah. limited to the amount of of tables there are. Oh, I see. Okay, so you didn't stop. You don't stop at six because you feel that seven your earn rate goes down. Well, to your be hourly honest, earn rate. Um, I go through this with clients all the time right. about you know because typically what happens is. People will play the maximum number of tables they can get away with mm-hmm. because they just want more action. Right. Uh, not necessarily right. top flight pro, but I mean, and so typically what I advise is like, let's say somebody's, somebody's playing eight tables as their maximum. And I, I ask them, like, so you have no more mental space when that's happening. Like, you don't have time to email or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're like, right. They're like, if I played fewer tables, I'd have more distractions, but I would play better. You know, they, they tell me their earn rate per table would go up because they're more focused. And so generally speaking, if somebody is playing the, you know, is, is always gravitating toward the maximum number of tables they can play, my recommendation is like back off one or two tables mm. and make that your maximum number and learn how to be patient enough to not have to fill every little nook and cranny. I know this doesn't right. necessarily apply to you, but I was just wondering where I you ended up with six tables. Yeah. You know. So for me, well, first of all, it's usually just an equation of the um, win rate per hour, right? So okay. I, I care about whether the win rate per hour is going to suffer or not. Exactly. And, I use the same thing. Yeah. Right. So to be honest, like if I would, if I was to play let's say a $500 buy-in game, uh, I don't mind to go nine tables or, or even more uh, and play a very short session. Because probably if I'm playing uh, those type of stakes, I'm, I don't have any other tables that I can play. And I might as well, I have probably a half an hour or one hour that I, I would like to get as much action as possible. But that's, that's a different, that's not my normal game. That's a sort Got of a it. one-off thing where i'm playing the high stakes first of all it's very unlikely that there are more than six tables running on poker Uh stars we are limited to four tables right so the six tables that i'm referring to would be usually well i have let's say four tables in poker stars and a couple more somewhere else because that the four on poker stars is the maximum i can have you you, you're not allowed to play more so usually I don't even have to make that decision because, well, so many games don't run at the same time very infrequently. Yeah. But at the, I feel like at these stakes, the addition of one table, one extra table, does affect the win rate way more than it would at the lower stakes, just because the quality of the opposition is so much much higher, and and you know they they exploit your like. Y- it's really costly 
to go into autopilot at those stakes, whereas no going kidding. into autopilot lower stakes doesn't right. really hurt you that much. Well, you're more like the race car driver at that at the high stakes. It was consequence to your laziness or whatever. Well, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, well, it depends. You see, because again, I I see with many people that I work with um, that the dollar amount is a very subjective thing. You know, to, to some people losing, I'd say a hundred thousand uh, is equivalent of hitting the wall at a hundred miles an hour. Right. Others losing a hundred thousand is just uh, it's not a great day in the office, but it's uh, you know it's just a scratch, and not because right. necessarily they are so much richer financially than the other guy, but it's just because they view the whole dollar amount very differently right, right? yes because again yeah. like everybody refers to let's say a hundred thousand to somebody's mind is gonna be one thing another guy is gonna see a house a sports car you know right. attaching things to the value right and it feels really different when when say you have a hundred thousand losing day you think back and you think oh could have could have bought a flat probably right you know? yeah and that that feeling is very different than if it's just a number uh-huh. Anyway, there's one one other thing that I want to, because I, I feel like we touched so many incredible topics f- uh, in and around the mental game of poker, and, uh-huh. and, and, and it's great. But I want to ask you, just out of curiosity, because I, I saw your, um, I forgot the name, Simple Poker? Uh, poker, poker Simple. Simple. Poker Simple. That's the yes, one. The poker Simple. Series. Yeah, video series on YouTube, uh, which you which you did with your buddy um, Lee Jones. Lee Jones, yes. and you guys were seems. I didn't watch a lot of that, but you know, yeah. preparing for for today, I did skim through, and and it it's really important. seemed that you guys were having so much fun we doing did. these series. We really did. <laughs> How did this idea come up? Like, why did you decide? Okay, let's make content for YouTube. Yeah, so. So Lee Jones, uh, in case anybody doesn't know he, who he was, he was the front face of Poker Stars for like 13 years. And um, he and I had known each other for many years. And we met back at 2 Plus 2 through posting. And then we lived nearby in the peninsula. He was in San Jose. I was in Palo Alto. And we've actually played some gigs together in a little band. And, and we've had a really good relationship for many years. And so... And he's a writer. And so what happened was um, January 2019, about you know a year and a half ago, he had moved back to Berkeley. I'm living in Oakland slash Berkeley. And he, Lee moved two miles down the road, right up here, right? Mm. And he's like, hey, I don't have a job. What do you think about putting together some kind of vlog or videos or do something? And I was like, well... I had just finished, you know, painless poker, dailiness, and waiting for straighters. And I started my new coaching program two years ago that we might talk about. You can just hire me at my website um, for one-off calls, one-off video calls like this. And 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 we're like, I'm like, okay, let's talk. So we got together and, and had coffee and we talked it over and we decided to develop something we weren't quite sure what it was going to be right and he lee is a big fan of jamin burton and um brad 
uh, Owen and, you know, the main, the main vloggers. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Lee had in mind was some kind of vloggy thing. And I was like, I'm not that type of person. I, you know, where I was like, here's what I had for lunch today or whatever. I've just never used the internet in that way. And, and I was like, uh, but if we'd come up with something that we can edit, <laughs> that's like content driven, maybe that could work. And one thing led to another. We looked into the you know YouTube videos, and I, I encourage everyone to go check out these videos because they really are fun. It's called Poker Simple. If you search for that, one word, just as one word, no space. We're Poker definitely going to put some uh, links in you'll, the description, yeah. so we're going to. You'll, you'll find it, but it's yeah. a. It, I can't explain it. Once you see it, you understand. But basically, it's just Lee and I talking in two chairs. And we have a topic and we talk about it and then we edit the hell out of it. And we add all kinds of sparkly bits and, you know, music clips and fun stuff. And so they're very fun. And I think they're very educational. The feedback has been fantastic. And then we stopped because of social distancing. We just, the whole project is completely over. We've done 31 episodes. We're never going to do any more. We're both on to new projects now. Um, In fact, I'll just tell you real quick what I'm doing. I am working on a new YouTube channel. It'll probably be up and running in another month or two. I don't have any links or anything yet, except be on the lookout. I'm going to be doing my own videos because I love, this is what I'm doing instead of writing books now is, is making videos. I love making videos. I love editing. And so just if you, uh, if you go to my website, TommyAngelo.com, you can join my mailing list there. And if you get on my mailing list, and I don't send out very many, but I will send a note out when, I, when my new YouTube channel opens. Awesome. Um, so and the answer what, to what is going to be the topic? Actually, I'm I'm curious now. Oh, what oh, is the well, I can tell you what it's going to be. It's poker. It's going to be called Poker Words. One word. Poker Words. Okay. And the name of the channel is actually going to be my channel, Tommy Angelo at YouTube. So it'll be very easy to find. Right. But it's just going to be me talking about various poker topics, and that's about all I know so far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's under development. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And I want to ask you about something because you mentioned this transition from writing and you earlier in our conversation, you you said you see yourself as a writer who writes Mm -hmm. about poker rather than a poker player who writes uh, poker books. Um, The difference and what does it mean to you? The difference between the two mediums, you know, putting your thoughts on paper or creating the content in a visual form for the YouTube audience. How, how does it, how do you feel yourself about it? Oh, well, um, even though the videos are edited, they are basically a live performance. Okay. It's, it's like a live concert that then gets edited down. So everything that live performance means and has in terms of it being unpredictable and authentic uh, you know, potentially very authentic. This this form of movie making that Lee and I did that I'm going to be doing, which is basically having a topic, but then go and then go through what was spoken and pick out the bets, the parts that seem like the most useful, package them up. That is a whole different process than writing, which is there's still a performance element. In other words, sometimes I might just draft two pages right? Just the stuff comes out. But then when it comes to refining it and editing it, it might end up taking a completely new form by the time it's published. 
It might get edited and tweaked around. This paragraph might turn into three paragraphs. This whole page might get deleted, right? So the revising, the way I write, the revising process is extensive and long and wonderful. That's what I love. So with the movies, there's a, there's really a lot less tweaking in a sense. It's more of a more of a live performance. Mm. Um, Do you feel that there are some topics that you can express in a video that you otherwise couldn't uh, in writing? Well, I don't think there are any particular topics. Um, I mean, unless it's something visual in a video, like if I'm showing somebody how to, you know, shuffle chips or something. But um, the there is definitely, I don't think there's a difference in the topics that can be covered. And I know that because I have my huge list of topics that I haven't written about. And I just put those over here in my video pile. You know, it's still the same topic. But there definitely is a difference in how the learning process takes place and how the information is conveyed. You know, like in a video, let's say I'm talking about something and and there's like a, a three-word phrase that I really want to make sure the reader get has extra emphasis on that. Well, writing, I might put it in italics. On the video, I can just flash the words on the screen or whatever, have some ex extra level of engagement with the viewer that imparts information using text itself or using a picture, you know, or let's say I, there's an emotion that I'm conveying in the video and they can see it in my face. And then I add a crying baby or some humor thing. So the whole thing is delivered, right? With, when you have only words to work with, you can convey super strong emotions, but it's a different, it's just different, you know. These are really completely different mediums. Um, I don't think any of the topics specifically lend themselves to one or the other, but the method of delivery and the method of intake is completely different. Mm. The part that seems that is remarkably the same for me, though, is the feeling I get when I'm editing. It feels the same. You know, because I have something to work with, which is either video or, you know, raw words that I, you know, first draft. And then it's mad scientist. It's like, close the doors, lock the windows, leave me alone for a couple of hours. I'm going to come out with something hmm. that's done, you know. Right, right. And of course, the feedback is much, uh, the feedback loop is much shorter. You know, you publish a book. There's a yeah. time before you start getting the emails uh, of yeah. either the happy or the angry sort. Whereas you put out a video, yeah. you're pretty much, you, you know what's happening right. and you can interact, right. which is a beautiful yes. thing. And you can adjust the product itself based on the feedback. Exactly. People want more of this. They want less of this. When you're in the middle of writing a book, you, you're kind of guessing. Mm -hmm. You don't have that. Although that's not true for me because I do send stuff out a lot while I'm working on it. Right. I have five or six people I do get their opinions on. So, mm -hmm. One thing, and I, I know we're coming to a two-hour mark and we're going to wrap it up soon, but there's one thing that I, I um, have on my mind and I, I didn't really want to have it as the final thing because it's a sad thing, right? But I want to ask okay. you if you've seen um, sort of a demise of some poker players. You know, when we talk about somebody who's achieved high 
success, mm-hmm. high visible success, and then sort of collapsed, right? Yeah. First yeah. of all, have you seen, uh, have you worked with some people like this? And uh, Yes. All right. So, because my question is, what in your opinion are some of the things that kind of lead to this? Lead to their collapse? Uh-huh. Well, there's a couple of different kinds. There's fast and slow. So like when... When there was the first time that there was like huge amounts of money flowing around in a big way was 06, 07, 08. And it was very common to hear about somebody, oh, you know, he's he's a millionaire now. And then you hear about him broke the next day. Well, this is just simple math, because if somebody goes from zero to a million in two months, it's very easy to see that they were risking amounts of their bankroll that were, say, not the the amount a steady grinder would. And and it's sort of like a coin tossing match. Some number of those people are going to get up to a million and we're going to hear about them. They're in the news now. And some number of them are going to continue gambling at the same ratios and they're going to run bad and lose it. Right. So the up quick, down quick, up quick, down quick is one type of pattern that is going to happen. You know, a lot of times people are just so young. Right. You know don't know what they should do and they get a million dollars or whatever. Then there's the, then there's the longer curve where, where you might hear about a famous player who's playing no ble- nosebleeds for four or five years or whatever. And then they, you know, you, you don't hear about them and you hear about them in rehab or whatever. I don't see any difference between that happening to a poker player or a writer or a, or a, or a rock star or a pro athlete, in any times, you know, we're all human. We all have the same foibles and issues, right? And so anytime you put somebody in drastic situations they're never done, been in before, drastic stuff's going to happen, you know? I mean, you take a, you know, a, a, a poor black man out of, a, of a, a life of pain and somehow he gets to go to college because he's worked so hard and then he gets to college and he's a successful athlete and now he's got this million dollar contract and then you hear about something bad happening well bad shit happens we only hear we hear about it when it happens to rich people because we we're attracted to that but it's really not that much different than anybody else who is suddenly inundated with great success and and somehow it doesn't go well, Mm. you know, for whatever reason. It's just human nature. Mm. I don't think there's anything special about poker disaster stories that are any different than any other, any other human disaster story. Mm. You know, we're just close to it because it's poker. Um, I will say that that schadenfreude is a thing to be on the lookout for. A lot of times people take pain when they see other people destroy themselves I would just say that as a general rule, that's an unhealthy, unwholesome thought. And and uh, that's a big part of what drives people's sort of addiction, drama addiction to the poker world is wanting to, to see other people go down, you know? Yeah, and I think it's a, such an important point that you mentioned that it, it, it is not something specific to poker. It is just human nature. And to me, what I see in, because another thing that you pointed out, you know, a lot of people became huge success almost overnight, 
which definitely means they probably didn't arrive there because they developed some sort of strong routines, strong habits that, you know, keep them on track. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, especially if we think some years back, the whole idea of having a team around you, of having coaches, of having other people mm-hmm. working together with you, it was foreign. You know, that, that yeah. idea didn't really exist. And, you know, what, what helps a lot of people stay on track is the cooperation, is right. somebody looking over your shoulder and sure. saying, hey, you know what, slow down, take a break. This is, this, you, you're a losing player right now, right? Because so often when somebody has a huge ego and so often you get a huge ego once you get to the top, uh, we mm-hmm. see it over and over again. The problem of recognizing that now you're a losing player, it's admitting to yourself that you're not who you think you are. And it's right. it's pretty hard. That's huge. Yeah. You identify or exactly. identif- identify as a winning player. I did the same thing. It's like if I wasn't winning, I wasn't it was like I was almost ceased to exist. You know, my identity was just destroyed. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, for for the poker disaster stories that we can think about some years ago, one of the common denominators, apart from you know the overnight successes and then clear lack of good routines, good habits, et cetera, et cetera, very often you also see that lack of a team, lack of support, lack of just somebody overlooking uh, looking over your shoulder and being frank, you know, because sure, a lot of people have an entourage of sort of you know, people who suck up to you and say, oh, you're, you're great, whatever you do, which is very unhealthy, you know, but, but the true team of people who can just honestly say to your face, listen, you know, slow down, take a break. Yeah. You know, we, we really lack that in, in the poker world. And I see that changing, you know, I I keep bringing it up um, with many, in many of my conversations that, you know, poker has evolved so much into basically a normal evolution of a sport you know if we think back at the times when the golf was starting you know guys were playing golf in the in the in the tours while smoking cigars drinking some whiskey you know just casual right and then now you think about all the coaches and all the all the things and you know and the same thing is happening in poker you know we, we were still are in the early stages, you know, now with all the technology coming into uh, facilitating the study process, you know, things are changing. And um, awesome. Well, Tommy, thank you so much. That was uh, so interesting. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I'll make sure to put all the links to all your stuff in the description. I encourage everybody to go check it out and be on the lookout for your new channel. Um, Yes. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Nice meeting you. Bye. Okay, see you.